Bibles to the uh, the book of Acts, chapter 11, this morning. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together, and we come now to chapter 11. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, just wave to the men that are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll get one to you. It'll be marked to our passage this morning. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Anything that's not built on that Bible and on the Word that's in that Bible is shaking and it is going to fall. And, uh, but any life, any, any person that has built their life on this, that's solid ground. And so uh, and take hold of that Bible and make it your own. Now, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the Word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went up, you went into a circumcised man, men, and ate with them? But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. And I observed it intently and considered. I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and the birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And at that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was having, where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. And moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you the words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us Jews from the beginning. And then I uh, remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit." And if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent. And then they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Christian life is one long revelation of the next thing God is teaching us. Lord, thank you so much for this passage, and thank you so much for all that you want to speak to us into our relationship with you, our understanding of you, Lord. We pray that you would use this time in your word to thoroughly furnish each of us unto every good work that you have called us to. We see the times and the seasons all around us, Lord. We see the instability of the world around us, and we see only one kingdom that is not being shaken, and that is the kingdom you want everyone to come into, the kingdom of God. 
And so continue to teach us about that kingdom and our place in it, Lord, and how to be effective in all of that, in being used by you to introduce the opportunity to be a part of it to everyone in this world. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Chapter 10 of the book of Acts contains the record of the first preaching of the gospel to a purely Gentile audience in the persons of a centurion by the name of Cornelius, his family, and then his closest friends who were in the home at the time that that gospel was preached. And then the salvation that resulted from that preaching of the gospel and the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit that happened immediately upon their conversion. And all of this was a monumental event in the history of Christianity. And if you doubt it, uh, just look at the sheer amount of space that the Holy Spirit commits to this particular record. All of chapter 10 and most of chapter 11 in elaborating all of this. More space given to it than the conversion of uh, Saul of Tarsus. More space given to it than even the events on the day of Pentecost. Now, it would be very, very easy to view chapter 11 as just kind of a a mere repetition of the events of chapter 10, but it isn't. There's a difference between the two chapters. Chapter 10 is a record of these events from the vantage point of heaven, while chapter 11 is given to us from the perspective of Peter. And throughout Peter's account, he is determined to make very, very clear that all of the events that he is recounting in chapter 11, all of these events occurred as a result of the Holy Spirit. There's a contention that occurs as Peter completes his ministry tour that he's on. Having left Jerusalem, he goes to Lydda, close to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, then to Joppa, right on the uh, coast of the Mediterranean Sea in Israel, goes north then to Cornelius' house in Caesarea, right on the Mediterranean Sea. And as he finishes this kind of missionary tour that he's in the middle of, he returns back into the city of uh, Jerusalem. But before he returned to Jerusalem, Word had gotten out of his conduct on this tour, and most especially uh, surrounding the salvation of Cornelius and his household, and all of that news now that he had gone to preach to Gentiles, that he had even eaten with them, that they were now saved as a result of the listening to the gospel, baptized in the Holy Spirit, that came back to the apostles and other Jews, the Christian Jews who were in uh, Jerusalem. And upon Peter's arrival then in Jerusalem, a group of Jewish Christians known as the Circumcision, they were a very legalistic uh, section of the body of Christ at that time. They brought their legalism with them out of their old life into their new Christian life, and they weren't quite cured of it yet. And so they carried the idea that, yes, people are saved on the basis of putting their faith in Jesus Christ, but they also must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And so they contended with Peter over his recent activities surrounding the salvation of Cornelius, a Jew, uncircumcised as a result, and his household. 
Their complaint is recorded there in verse 3, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, some people and commentators look at that particular statement and they declare that these that were of the circumcision, that they weren't concerned so much that Cornelius and his family got saved, but they were most upset about the fact that Peter had gone in and eaten with the Gentiles. And, and I think that's a, 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 to miss the larger picture of what it is that's going on here. I don't think that their complaint is really uh, that specific. The, clearly, by their statement in verse 18, where they declare, then God also has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life, reveals that their contention with Peter had not only to do with his eating with the Gentiles, but over the fact that the Gentiles could be saved at all. And they're upset with Peter. They are genuinely upset with Peter. They call him on the carpet for what it is that he has done. We're told that they contended with him. The word literally means to pick apart And uh, so they began to pick apart his actions. It speaks of criticizing. They begin to criticize him. How could you as a Jew do this and and so forth, whatever the form of the conversation and took. And poor Peter, what a miserable place to be. I mean, he's just trying to listen to God, do what God has told him to do. And this is what, you know, comes his way. But I don't think that all of this hit him uh, unexpectedly. He wasn't blindsided by it. When he gets the word from the Holy Spirit that he's to go to Caesarea and that the Holy Spirit is up to something, he has the idea that the Holy Spirit is up to something that might be controversial uh, for the average Jew and even the average Jewish leader at this time. So he takes with him six other Jewish Christians with him to be a witness of whatever happens, whatever God's going to do, so that he wouldn't be alone in verifying the facts. Further, when he's in this hearing before this, these men that made up the circumcision, he brings those six witnesses with him. He anticipated that God was going to do something that was going to kind of ruffle their feathers, and he wanted to have some support in uh, all of of them, he knew he'd have some splaining to do, in the words of Ricky Ricardo, uh, concerning what had just happened. Now, Peter, in his defense, it's d- described for us in verses 4 through 17. He doesn't get heated, he doesn't get angry, he doesn't get argumentative uh, with them or defensive. What he does is he simply, as his defense, he lays out the facts for what it is that happened there. This is what happened. He lays it out. And as he lays out the facts of the entire circumstance, he was basically communicating to them essentially that he was not to be blamed at all for what happened. That if you're looking to blame somebody for what happened with the salvation of this household of Gentiles, don't blame me. Blame the Holy Spirit. Because he declares in verse 12 that it was the Holy Spirit who gave him the vision. It was the Holy Spirit who told him to accompany these men that had been sent as messengers back to Cornelius' house, doubting nothing. God was communicating to him, Peter, I'm in this. It was the Holy Spirit, verses 15 through 17, 
who fell upon Cornelius and all who were in his home at the preaching of the gospel and then not only saved them but then baptized them with the Holy Spirit. And he puts the Holy Spirit, I mean, if you're ever in trouble and you're on the right side of the Holy Spirit and somebody else isn't, put the Holy Spirit between you and them. And that's exactly what he does. Now, to their credit, these men of the circumcision, they listen to Peter, and they listen very honestly, they listen very intently, open heart, and even though all of this cut right across their very, very considerable religious and cultural biases, they did accept that this was the work of the Holy Spirit and that God had granted salvation to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. What you have going on, in my mind at least, in these first 18 chapters of chap- uh, verses of chapter 11, is that at its core, what you have here is a clash over the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And Peter makes it very clear to them that while they think they have a problem with him, the real problem that they have is with the Holy Spirit. Again, in verse 12, it was the Holy Spirit, he said, who gave him the vision, told him to accompany these messengers back uh, to Caesarea. And then it was the Holy Spirit who fell upon Cornelius and everyone who was in the house, not only saving them, but further baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. And he repeats the Holy Spirit almost as often as he can within the passage. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit... Once in verse 12, then again in verse 15, then again in verse 16. And at the heart of this dispute is the fact that the Holy Spirit violated the cultural and religious biases of this legalistic sect within early Christianity known as the circumcision. I think that it's very important to understand about each of us individually concerning ourselves, that when we become Christians, that I would venture to guess all of us do, but I'll be on the safe side and say merely that most of us bring into that Christian life, we bring with us very strong cultural and religious and personal biases into our personal relationship with God. We bring our history, we bring our personalities, we bring our upbringing, we bring our indoctrination, whether secular or religious. We bring an awful lot of baggage that has nothing to do with God and that God isn't interested in keeping in our lives. All of us bring that into Christianity and into our relationship with the Lord. For those who contended with Peter from their previous religious background, they brought the conviction that no one could ever have a covenant relationship with God except that they would also be circumcised. And they brought that over into their relationship with Christ and the idea that a person is not saved through faith alone, but a person must also be circumcised. That belief strongly held, strongly held conviction 
by this group of men, and doubtless a comparable group of women, but this belief had no basis at all in Christianity. They brought it with them into their Christian life, and in fact, that belief was completely contrary to what the Bible teaches concerning Christianity. Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians, in chapter 5, verse 6, he said, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. He would write also to the church at Colossae, and he said, where in Christ concerning the relationship with Christ and being in Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. Each of us as Gentiles, and I uh, suspect that most of us are Gentiles in this room, and a Gentile is simply a non-Jew. But each of us, even as Gentiles, maybe not raised in a, a Jewish Orthodox kind of upbringing as they kind of had, each of us can bring ideas about God that he may or uh, what he may or may not do, and things that have no basis in Scripture, but that we bring along with us into our Christian life, and then we treat them as truth until the Holy Spirit then exposes them to be our own biases and then frees us from them. And I don't think there's a single Christian that misses that. I think, I think from speaking for myself, I have no doubt that I still possess, after all of these years, certain biases that are still trying to attach themselves to me as I am on this pilgrimage in life, that try to attach to me on a weekly basis, that the Lord is constantly purging away because it has nothing to do with my identity in Christ and nothing to do with how he wants Christianity to be represented in the world. Classic examples of things that can sometimes attach to our lives or even attach to Christians as a whole or people's understanding uh, of Christianity. Sometimes they'll, you know, they'll do polling on, they're always trying to keep track of how um, educated Christians are in the Bible, in their Bible knowledge. And I'll usually read those things when they come out and then tell Karen to remove all sharp objects from the household. Uh, it's always very, very dismal and very, very discouraging what's happening in terms of the average Christian's understanding of the Word of God. But sometimes there'll be um, uh, people will believe things like cleanliness is next to godliness, that that's a verse within the Bible. And, uh, and, but it's a cultural invention. It's good hygiene. I'm putting it down. If you've ever been on an elevator and, uh, you know, kind of felt, you know, that saying came to your mind, but to realize that it's not in the Bible. It, 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 cleanliness is uh, good hygiene isn't necessarily a sign of spiritual purity or godliness. And another statement like, God helps those who help themselves. No. The Bible encourages diligence, faithfulness, hard work from one end to the other. We are to be that. But the Bible actually teaches that for the most part, God helps those who can't help themselves. It's when God pushes us beyond our own resources, and then He extends His resources uh, to us. 
And, and the fact of the matter is, is that we rarely rely on God or resort to him for help until we're finally kind of incapable of helping ourselves in whatever situation that we're in. I think that each of us, I think I'm safe in, in projecting this upon you, is in myself, is that each of us came into our Christian life with some kind of self-originating definition of holiness that we brought with us. The idea, uh, like the, those of the circumcision maybe, and it, however it fits in our culture, that a truly godly person would never eat with or have a close personal relationship with an unsaved person, uh, or that no godly person would ever watch television or listen to the radio or dance uh, or wear makeup and so forth. And these kind of things that we've seen even recently in church history in the United States of America were marks of spirituality that dominated people's thinking even more than a relationship with God. And yet they did not come from the Word of God. They were cultural biases, uh, personal biases that got introduced into the church and, and uh, that were brought in by uh, obviously some kind of a collective mass that agreed with it enough to elevate these things to the position that ultimately they gained. In our passage, you have two types of Christians, one represented by Peter and the other represented by the circumcision, and uh, who have very, very different views of the Holy Spirit and what they believe the Holy Spirit can do and cannot do and what they uh, believe that he will do or he will not do. And Peter believed in verse 17 that the Holy Spirit was free to do as he pleases and that to resist the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit was to resist God or to withstand God. The circumcision, these other Jews believed that there are certain things that the Holy Spirit could not do, certain things that he will not do and that he's not free to do in their minds. And then, but so often in the case of that kind of person, when you look closely at the restrictions that they place upon the Holy Spirit, you soon discover that they're simply trying to protect their own personal convictions or opinions or biases from ever being violated even by the Holy Spirit. It's not on the table for him to even do in this denomination or non-denomination or this church. And that's how strong these biases can be. And essentially what happens then is they fashion the person, the work of the Holy Spirit, after themselves, and they'll only accept a view of him and his work that fits their personal comfort zone. And I think that if you look at the average Christian, and I'm not being critical, I just, this is just to think some things out, out loud to think about. And you look at the average Christian after they've walked with the Lord for five years, let's say, and beyond. And for the most part, I think that uh, you, you'll find that the average Christian has settled into an understanding of the Scripture, uh, of the Holy Spirit, and an uh, experiential relationship with the Holy Spirit that they are comfortable with. And most often, we settle for a relationship with the Holy Spirit that is far short from the one that is described within the Scriptures. 
but our personal biases, our personal comfort level, our willingness to go this far and no further, even if it's the Holy Spirit who is trying to do that in my life, we establish that, and then we settle back into it. And the nice thing about the Holy Spirit is He won't give up on us, just like He wouldn't do with Peter. Peter, when he talks to them about what happened at Cornelius' house, he says, listen, essentially, I'm just like you. The Holy Spirit took me there kicking and screaming. I'm not the hero of this story and the salvation of the Gentiles in that house. I was as prejudiced against them and as as narrow-minded toward the Holy Spirit as ever you were. And sometimes it's good on a morning like this morning to just stop and go back and to examine what we're willing to allow the Holy Spirit to do and to be in our lives and through our lives, or have we allowed biases to enter in and to define that for us rather than to allow it to be defined by the Word of God? I say it, why? Because I feel the pressure and the temptation in my own bones and in my own life. But to observe that by and large, there is so often with a person who begins very uh, open to the things of the Holy Spirit, excited about these things, growing in these things, God is using them and then to run into them some years later and so forth. And they are far away from, not only did they not build upon this understanding of the Spirit and experience with the Holy Spirit, but they have now neglected that and found a completely different place that they're going to settle in for the rest of their three score and ten. And it's a great temptation for all of us. Now, famously, the Apostle Paul wrote in his first epistle to the church at Corinth, and he spoke to them about the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, how they were to operate in a local church and individually in chapters 12 through 14. And he, he uh, finishes his instruction, a very lengthy instruction to them uh, concerning all of these things related to the Holy Spirit. And he closed by saying, let all things be done decently and in order. And essentially, he's saying one thing, but he's saying two things in saying it. He's saying, number one, let all things be done. That speaks to a certain kind of Christian. And then decently in order. That speaks to another kind of Christian. And the two of them put together, if there is within the heart of a Christian that I want all things to be done that is legitimate of the Holy Spirit but I want it to be done decently in an order as the Scriptures define, now that person's going to be able to head freely into an experience with the Holy Spirit and being used by the Holy Spirit in a way that if I just load myself toward one extreme or the other will never happen. If I'm all, let all things be done, but no concern for decently in an order, that produces a certain atmosphere, a certain church, a certain kind of Christian. But at the same time, you can have people who are all things in order, but they don't allow all things to be done, as the Scripture describes concerning the Holy Spirit. 
Why not have both of them? And that's what Paul encouraged the church at Corinth. That's the place that you want to be as a Christian, and that's the place that we want to be as well. And so his statement, let all things be done decently in an order, is just pure genius because it is intended to keep us as Christians from settling into one of two extremes in this regard, and every one of us has a tendency, a natural tendency, to settle into one extreme or another in all of this. So first he says, let all things be done. In other words, as Christians, there's to be this, an openness to the Holy Spirit, to His leading, to His activity within our lives, and then through our uh, lives, His activity in our gatherings and through our gatherings. And again, a very needed exhortation to those of us who are more conservative or maybe even a little bit misguided in our views concerning the Holy Spirit, just as the circumcision were here in our passage. We define where in that category our temptation is to define the Holy Spirit, what He can do, what He cannot do, based upon our own opinions, based upon, well, I think He should, I don't think He should, I think He will, I don't think He will, or we base it upon our own comfort zones or our own personality and our own personal preferences, and then we take all of those things together, we put Him in that box of our prejudices and our personality and our personal preferences and our comfort zone, and we take the Holy Spirit, put Him in that box for His good and for our good, and then we keep Him safely away from us doing anything unexpected or supernatural, and then we proceed to forget about Him uh, entirely unless He keeps Himself before us. And then we proceed to live a Holy Spiritless life or far short of the one that God has for us. And then, amazingly, we will proselytize other people into holding the same view and teach against the baptism with the Holy Spirit or the fullness of the Holy Spirit or being refilled with the Holy Spirit or the legitimacy or the importance of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and so forth. But then there's another kind of Christian who is more than open to the person in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and they so desire some manifestation of the Spirit in their lives and in uh, the church services that they throw all discernment out the window, all order out the window. And so the church service then has the potential to become a free-for-all. And so nothing is being tested by but what is being said or ascribed to the Holy Spirit, and uh, none of the activity, all of the words where uh, these things are coming from and what's being said in the name of the Lord, not getting tested by whether is that of the Holy Spirit, is that of the human spirit, that is the flesh, is it of the world, where is this thing coming from? And that's what was happening in the church at Corinth. And they, and I commend them immensely over their openness to the Holy Spirit and their desire for spiritual gifts. It's all very commendable, but they needed to be reminded that while all things were to be done, that when the Holy Spirit is at work, it will be, they will be done decently and in order. Otherwise, anything and everything can be ascribed to the Holy Spirit, even things that don't have anything to do with the Holy Spirit, things that He would never play a part in. And I've been a Christian for a little while, 
And I've seen a few fads come through the church, and not just peripheral kind of things that were isolated to some one church or two church or something like this, but fads related to the Holy Spirit that has swept through the whole uh, body of Christ. And maybe not everybody practiced those things, but they were confronted with it. I think some time ago, I remember when that whole holy laughter phase went through the body of Christ, where the Holy Spirit supposedly would come upon someone so strong in the congregation that they would just begin to laugh uncontrollably, begin to laugh in uh, the church service. And then it would become infectious, and other people would begin to laugh. And all of this was a manifestation that the Holy Spirit showed up until finally the entire room is laughing, and all of it being ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Here you have the preacher maybe teaching on the fear of God. It means nothing. There's a complete disconnect in all of it. The entire room is laughing, so-called, uh, in the Spirit. And uh, then following that, there was the barking in the Spirit, where people actually began to bark during the services, and that somehow this was a revelation that the Spirit had uh, shown up. And then finally there was, uh, uh, beyond that, there was the roaring in the Spirit, people getting down on all fours on the floor, roaring like a lion. After all, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and so you know, why wouldn't you do something like that? And why wouldn't the Holy Spirit do something like that? And then it moved on to getting drunk in the Spirit, where people were sitting in a pew and uh, like they're on a bar stool or something. And they become like so inebriated in the Holy Spirit, they can't even stay in the seat and they're falling off, off of the seat and into the aisle. And some of them begin to try to walk and they're falling all over the place. And then it spreads from, you know, pew to pew and aisle to aisle on the whole thing. And people are walking around, you know, uh, drunk in the Spirit and all of this being ascribed to the Holy Spirit. And then one of my favorites, because I had actually hoped that this might be true, that God, where He was working in a person's life or in a congregation, that He would uh, automatically turn all of our silver fillings in our mouth into gold fillings. Why would, why would a king's kid have silver fillings when God can, owns the cattle on a thousand hills and can make them gold fillings and all? And, uh, and, and these, these kind of things that when we look back on them, uh, most of us cringe at the memory of, of all of this. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, as awful as that kind of thing is, and, and it is awful in its own way, because it's a heavy thing to represent God in the world and to represent the Holy Spirit in the world. But as dangerous as those kind of excesses are, I think it's just as dangerous to refuse to allow the Holy Spirit the room and the freedom to be who He is and what He is and what He wants to be in this world and especially among His people. And so we stop at a time like this and we just ask ourselves, when there's so much in play and when there can be so confusing to understand what really is of God is it safe to yield to the Holy Spirit? What will the Holy Spirit look like in my life and so forth? Are there any guidelines or safeguards that we can operate from as Christians if we desire to be open to the fullness of the Spirit in and through our lives that will help us to know whether something is really, truly of the Holy Spirit or whether it isn't? And thankfully, there are. 
And these boundaries, God lays out some boundaries within the Scripture that allow us to experience an even greater freedom and openness to the Spirit. We don't oftentimes think about boundaries as allowing greater freedom. We think that these things are contrary to one another, but it's not true. It's not true in life, and it's not true in, in the physical life or, or true in a spiritual life. Uh, boundaries so often, when they're properly placed, they allow a person a greater freedom in an area of their life than they would ever otherwise know. I remember reading an article uh, many years ago, and true story, about an elementary school where uh, this elementary school in this large city was located on a very, very busy street. And somehow the school board, after some time, they decided to put a cyclone fence up around the entire school, including a fence that uh, would go along the road and separate the playground uh, from the busy road and the sidewalk there. And the very first recess, something happened that was uh, very dynamic. They put the fence up in the very first recess. They discovered and noticed what they hadn't noticed before, that prior to putting the boundary in place, all of the children played at recess huddled up against the safety of the buildings. But as soon as there was a fence between the playground and the danger of the road, they released completely and began to play in the entirety of the playground. And it's the same thing so often as it relates to the Holy Spirit and where the erection of kind of these fences or these boundaries that are put here in Scripture, they don't hold us back from experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit or His work. It allows us to take a deep breath to realize that this is safe and then to fully experience Him in a way that we might not uh, otherwise do. And so, so it is concerning the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me list for you a number of safeguards that the Scripture give us in this regard that allow us to fully release to the Holy Spirit without any reservation within our life. Number one, the Holy Spirit will never do anything that violates the Word of God. He'll never do that. He'll never call us to do something like that. He will never do that. He is the author of the Word of God. And what the Holy Spirit did in the saving of the Gentiles in Caesarea was completely in line with God's Word. Nothing bizarre about that at all. Jesus had spoken and given the Christians a great commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. All the way back in Genesis chapter 19, when God called Abram, later to become Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, God spoke to Abraham and said, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse him who curses you, and in you all of the Jews in the world will be blessed. No, he didn't say that. He said, in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. 
because the Messiah would come into the world through the Jewish people. But it was revealing to Abraham, I have a love not only for your people, the Jewish people, but for the whole world as well, and I want them to be saved. Those of the circumcision, when they heard about what Peter had done in Caesarea, ought to have turned to the Bible, turned to the Word, and they should have asked, is the salvation of the Gentiles consistent with the Word of God? And they would have immediately, I could, we could spend the rest of the morning quoting verses just from Isaiah on the issue, that God was going to come and save the Gentiles. And when they turned to the Scripture, they would have discovered that it was in the Word of God and that they should have been at peace, that this was a work of the Holy Spirit, and thus it was safe, regardless of whether they were culturally or religiously or personally uncomfortable with it or not. A second safeguard is that the Holy Spirit will never manifest Himself in a way that's inconsistent with the nature or the... Uh, character or ministry of Jesus. One of my favorite descriptions of the Holy Spirit in all of the Bible, and there's a lot of different descriptions of the Bible, lots of different titles. I love it where Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and he described the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. And Paul's communicating the very same thing that the Holy Spirit will never, ever do anything that's inconsistent with the life and the character and the ministry of Jesus for the simple fact that Jesus performed the, the ministry that he did in the three and a half years of his public ministry, the entire 33 and a half years of his incarnation in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the same spirit that was in Jesus comes inside of us as Christians. And how he manifested himself through Jesus, he'll do the same thing for us. And knowing that, it, it, it reassures me that the Holy Spirit is never going to ask me to do something. He's never going to do something himself that's inconsistent with the nature and the character of Jesus. In other words, if I see something happening that is being attributed to the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't look like something Jesus would say or that he would do as we understand him from the Gospels, then I have good reason to be suspect that it is the Holy Spirit. I don't have to accept it as a true manifestation of the Spirit, and neither do I have to worry that the Holy Spirit's going to make me do something crazy or unchristlike. The Holy Spirit will if the Holy Spirit operates through our lives, He'll operate in a way that is consistent with Jesus. And that is important to someone like me because it makes me realize that the Holy Spirit is safe and I can yield to Him and I can obey Him even as I would Jesus. That the Holy Spirit is as safe as Jesus is. And when you come from a background that I did a little bit in my youth, where there was a little bit of suspicion within that church concerning the Holy Spirit and not really an openness 
uh, to him and his uh, gifts and his leading and, and so forth. This was a big lesson there, big safeguard for me to learn about and to realize that, no, he is as safe as Jesus himself in our lives. And sometimes people have a funny idea about the Holy Spirit in terms of the Godhead. Uh, we think that, I think that uh, sometimes people believe him to be kind of the odd or the eccentric uncle of the Godhead. It's like father, check. Son, check. Holy Spirit, hmm. And why, why do we think that? You stop. Why do we think that? If, if, you, if we do have that kind of a, of a thing that happens in our life, okay, he's safe, he's safe, Holy Spirit, okay. Uh, I want to have some witnesses around, you know. I want to hold my wallet or whatever it might be. And I think a lot of it's culture. A lot of it's indoctrination. Our views of the Holy Spirit are being fashioned even within Christendom in a way that we don't even realize and it's important to realize that he is as safe as the Father and he is as safe as the Son. And so, when we put holy laughter uh, or barking in the Spirit or roaring in the Spirit or getting drunk in the Spirit, we put it to the test of, is this something that Jesus would do? Does this look like his character and his nature in the Gospels? And we realize he wouldn't get within a thousand miles of that. And then we're able to look at that and realize it's not a true manifestation of the Spirit. And it's helpful. Third, the Holy Spirit will always, always testify of Jesus. He'll always point to Jesus. He's always looking to glorify Jesus. Uh, Jesus said in John 15, But when the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Later, Jesus declared concerning the Holy Spirit, John's Gospel again, He will glorify me, for He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. He testifies to Jesus. He loves to make much of Jesus. He adds His amen to any environment or any situation that Jesus is being well spoken of, where he is being glorified. The Holy Spirit immediately comes in, and he begins to get involved in that. And he's not just interested in glory. He, he's interested in being involved in any kind of individual life or any environment where that is happening. He is not interested in glorifying a man or men, or women, or human beings, or a church, or a denomination, or a non-denomination. He loves to glorify Jesus and to testify to Jesus. And the moment that a church or a, a church service or a minister becomes about something else, the elevation of man or men rather than God, then the Holy Spirit just, he withdraws his testimony, he withdraws his witness and his participation. He will not be a part of it. Do you know the single greatest thing that we can do in order to invite the Holy Spirit to be as active as he can be in our church services and in our individual lives is to make much of Jesus 
And the more that we make of Jesus, the more that we speak of Jesus, the more we give the Holy Spirit to testify to concerning Him in people's lives. And it, again, it isn't just on a, a church level. It happens on an individual level. This leading of the Holy Spirit. You start to talk to the, somebody about the Lord, start to mention Jesus, and you realize there's a supernatural dynamic that's come alongside me now, and it's the Holy Spirit. Fourth, it's important to realize that when the Holy Spirit is operating through a person's life, that the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in this regard. He said, and the spirits of the prophet are subject for the prophets, for the God is not the author of confusion, but peace as in all of the churches of the saints. Well, what in the world is that all about? Well, in other words, when the Holy Spirit is speaking through a person or he's exercising a gift through a person, that person can exercise self-control. We do not lose control of our spirit, of ourselves, when the Holy Spirit uses us in this kind of, of a way. Sometimes people will do very odd things, even kind of crazy things, and uh, in the name of the Spirit, and then blame it on the Holy Spirit, and then say something like, well, the Holy Spirit made me do that. And what that does for an entire group of Christians who are then watching something that doesn't look like Christ occur, it puts a panic in our hearts. If I yield myself over to the Holy Spirit, then He's going to take over and He's going to make me do something or say something that I may not want to do. I may be at the checkout counter at the grocery store, and the person asks me, will there be anything else? And he'll force me to start speaking in tongues or prophesying to them. It'll never happen. You never lose control of yourself in this. If the Holy Spirit wants to lead us to do something, He won't even force us to do that. I now make a decision on whether I'm going to obey what He's leading me to do or not. And again, it reminds us that the Holy Spirit is safe, and it's important. We never lose control of ourselves when used by the Holy Spirit. And in writing to the church at Corinth, he was addressing kind of the pure chaos of their church services, where everybody was just speaking over top, top of one another, and, and some of them had a psalm they were singing, and others were teaching at the same time, and there was a tongue, and then revelation, interpretation, all of it going on on top of one another. And Paul spoke to the prophets within uh, the congregation, and he said that the prophets don't need to be yelling over the top of one another. Let one man prophesy. And let God speak through that man. And you have the control to wait over here until he's done. And then when he's done, you prophesy what the Holy Spirit has put on you. You have control in the situation. You don't have to be frantic in that kind of a way. And so forth in the speaking of all of the prophecies. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. We maintain control in all of this. And, of course, this is the way in which, if God is going to speak to, to people or to a congregation, that we can hear one thing at a time and allow it to absorb into our spirit 
and allow it to do its important uh, work. And so it makes for the best environment for the exercise of the gifts and an openness to the Holy Spirit. A lot gets blamed on the Holy Spirit that doesn't have anything to do with Him. Sometimes it can just be emotionalism, and then sometimes it can just be bad behavior, and it helps us to know that, that uh, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. And, and fifth, once again, when the Holy Spirit is work, at work, he does all things decently and in order. This speaks to not only what is done, but then how it's done. It's important to the Holy Spirit that when he exercises himself through our lives, it's important what he's doing. It's important what he's wanting to say through our lives, but it is also very important to him how that comes forth to a congregation and how it's witnessed before the world. And again, at the church in Corinth, what they were uh, doing was right, the exercise of the spiritual gifts, but they were doing it, uh, how they were doing it was not under the control of the Holy Spirit. And I think that some of these things are just very important. They put that fence up around that schoolyard, and they let us know where the boundaries are, what's safe, so that we will then feel free to experience the fullness of what is legitimately of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me close very briefly on this statement of uh, Peter there to finish verse 17 when he closes his entire presentation to these of the circumcision. And he said, who was I that I could withstand God? You guys are trying to put me on the carpet for this. Who was I that I could withstand God? Who was I to resist God? And it's a good question. Anybody can resist God. You can't resist God and win, no matter how powerful you are. I mean, you look in the Scriptures. Pharaoh learned that. More power than perhaps any man in all of human history. God said, let my people go. He wasn't interested, and he liked the slave labor. He let them go. He let them go. You can't resist or withstand God and win. It just won't happen. Now, there are many ways that we can find ourselves resisting God. For instance, a failure to surrender my life to Him entirely. That's an example of resisting God. But here, and I think it's very important to notice, Peter makes the statement in the context of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the point that he's making to these Christians who are misguided and growing in their understanding of things is that it's important that we do not find ourselves resisting God in this area of the Holy Spirit by elevating our own religious and cultural and personal biases to the point that we reject the legitimate ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and through our lives. God, help us to be more open to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit than we ever have been before. And as Christians, here we are, called to represent the kingdom of God, called to represent God Almighty Himself in this very strategic point in human history. We cannot afford to relegate the Holy Spirit to some box of our own making. 
a box that is formed by our own cultural and religious and personal biases, or then to attack someone like Peter who are willing to move beyond all of that and then allow the Holy Spirit to be the third person of the Godhead that He truly is. To withstand the Holy Spirit or to resist the Holy Spirit in part is to deny the importance of the possibility of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the importance and the significance of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and operating within those gifts and the calling that God has upon our lives. And thankfully, those who had contended with Peter, give them credit. I mean, you just got to give them credit. They recognized their error and then glorified God for the work of the Holy Spirit that He performed in the lives of these Gentiles and bringing them to repentance to life. And God help us to operate in that beautiful balance of let all things be done, but decently and in order, not failing to embrace all that the Bible teaches us as Christians concerning the Holy Spirit, but then manifesting those things in a way that looks like Jesus decently and in order. I close with this. I know I'm over time already, but I won't be long. No matter what your experience, and my experience is with the Holy Spirit, whether you've walked with God for 10 years or 20 years or 40 years, whether you know the Holy Spirit and have experienced with the Holy Spirit and His use of you things that are way beyond what I've ever experienced, I don't doubt that kind of thing. But what I do know is that with the world changing the way that it is all around us, that we're going to need to grow in our understanding of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, no matter how well we know Him, even more in our lives, even more. A greater sensitivity to His voice, to His leading, a greater openness to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, to His performing miracles through us or among us or whatever it is that He has in mind. In our generation, if it was true of previous generations because of the Judeo-Christian ethic or foundation of the United States of America, that's gone now. It's gone. And so the freedom and the ability to take the Holy Spirit subject Him to all of our biases in our comfort zone, put Him in a box and leave Him over in a corner. Maybe other generations got away with that. We are not going to get away with that, not in the world that we're living in. And I'm not being heavy. I'm not… This is not an exhortation. This is an encouragement to realize the importance of being open to the fullness of this and to never stop growing in the things of the Holy Spirit. I have found, I mentioned it earlier in the sermon, that as we walk with the Lord, maybe after five years, ten years, 
20 years, we look back on this Holy Spirit side of things in our Christian life, and for many Christians, it's a distant memory. It is a memory. But that was something that I was way back then, but I've left that. And to just stop and look and say, did the Holy Spirit bring me to that place? Or have I been searching for and fashioned a Christianity and a relationship with the Holy Spirit that is comfortable for me, that matches my prejudices and it matches my cultural expectations and so forth, but I'm very, very far away from what I once was in this realm. We're going to need to know how to hear His voice, to be led by Him, to take steps of faith by Him, to receive from Him into our own personal relationship with God and Spirit like never before. It's so important that both of those things mark our lives. Let all things be done. And then there's the safety factor, decently and in order. And if you have moved into a Christian life where the dynamic of the Holy Spirit is something that is a distant memory or it's something that you've said, no, it was never a memory because I've never allowed that. I've never been open to Him to have any kind of freedom in my life than to reconsider that. It will not be an option for us because if revival does not come, there's either revival or rapture. That's the only hope for the world. I know some of you are just like way into this election. God bless you. But that election is not going to fix the problems of this world. I don't care who gets elected. That's still $19 trillion worth of debt in a country that is plunging morally and spiritually. As I heard somebody say in a sermon recently, when God is your problem, only God is your solution. The, United, the problem of the United States of America is God. Not that deficit, not anything else. God's got a problem. And the solution to that problem is God, is not anything else. Important for us to realize that. But the hour in which we live, the importance, let's keep growing in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. <clears throat> Fathers, we see Peter's words here, who was I to withstand God? And yet, as we read it in the context of the Holy Spirit, we recognize our capacity to do exactly that to withstand you day after day and week after week and month after month and even year after year and not being open to the fullness of the Holy Spirit or having been used by you in the early years of our Christian life and taking those gifts and that calling and putting them in a napkin and burying them somewhere. And I just pray, Lord, that you take this sermon and all that it is and all that it isn't and all the messiness of it. I pray you help each and every one of us to leave this place today recognizing that, that we cannot afford to subject the third person of the Godhead and what he is and he, only he can be to the body of Christ and to us individually and to withstand him in any way. 
We pray that you take us as a church, that you take us individually by the hand, and keep taking us out into the deep water of the Holy Spirit until we can't touch the bottom, until we're in the flow of the Holy Spirit, Lord, as Ezekiel brought forth in the vision. And we pray for that, Lord. Keep us growing in this regard, into the beauty and into the glory of all of it. And then also, Lord, for the sake of the world all around us, that they wouldn't be able to look at our lives and conclude that we're just some kind of a group of people that believe a certain thing about God, but they don't see any dynamic, no joy, no love, no peace, no boldness, Lord, nothing to speak of your Spirit. Would you help us from settling into that kind of a Christianity, something that we are all prone to do, Lord? Take us. We ask you, Lord, as a church, take us deeper and more fully into these things we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Samuel, would you close us?